0: Welcome to SBCA's Lumber Connection podcast, where we discuss today's market and explore tomorrow's trends. Here's our host, Molly
1: Butts. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Lumber Connection. This podcast was recorded mid-December 2023 and is a departure from our usual conversation. In this special episode, I'm joined by SBCA's Director of Communications, Sean Shields, as we talk with Tim Stevenson, founding partner and CEO at Metal Edge Partners, LLC. Our topic for this podcast is the steel market and how it potentially impacts our industry's metal connector plates. Welcome to the podcast, guys.
0: Pleasure to be here, Molly. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: It's so nice to have you, Tim. Tim, let's start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: That sounds good. Yeah, I started my career in the mid 90s as an analyst for a mutual fund company in Minneapolis. And from there went on to a number of different equity analyst roles at that same company as well as a few different hedge funds. And the last hedge fund I was at was called Black River Asset Management. And there I ran a long short equity portfolio of steel, coal and machinery stocks. And that went up until about 2012. And I left Black River at that point and joined Cargill, where I headed up an analytical department there for the steel industry and also began trading steel derivatives in order to hedge the price risk for Cargill as they had a steel processing business that moved about 800,000 to a million tons a year. And I spent about four years doing that. And after that, I felt like there was another kind of gap in the market that I felt like I could fill. And so I left Cargill and started Metal Edge Partners. And Metal Edge Partners is a registered Commodity Trading Advisor or CTA. We work with steel service centers, OEMs and the like to help them manage the steel price risk in their business. And that includes a lot of steel market intelligence that we gather from talking to a number of people in the steel industry, as well as making trade recommendations on when they should or should not hedge their steel costs. So that's really my background. If we want to move into the questions, that'd be great.
1: Let's start with a brief overview of the global steel supply. like what what's going on with supply, demand, government intervention, like duties and tariffs? like how is that impacting the. US. steel purchasers?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I would start with China and to give you some perspectives, China produces about 900 million to a billion tons of steel every year. And to compare that with the U.S., we produce about a hundred million tons. So if you think about that, China is nine to 10 times the size of the U.S. when it comes to steel production. And what happens when steel su- supply and demand gets out of balance a little bit in China, they start exporting and They usually export somewhere in the range of 50 million tons a year, but it could be as high as a hundred million tons. So if you think about that, just the exports out of China can be as large as the entire US steel industry. And there have been tariffs in place preventing Chinese steel from coming directly to the US for many years. So when they export that steel, it doesn't come here directly. It might go to Vietnam, other Asian countries, to be transformed into some other product. It could be a 20 pound propane cylinder. Uh, It could be connecting plates for all I know, but what happens is it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole. So when ramps up their steel exports, it tends to pressure prices around the world and vice versa, when demand picks up in China and exports fall, pricing for steel in China and those steel exports generally rise. So the point is. It's really critical to pay attention to what's happening in China, because even though they can't send steel here directly, that steel in some way, shape or form can end up in the United States after it's significantly transformed. So to stay on China real briefly, they had a small decrease in steel production in 2023, but not as much as people expected at the beginning of the year. And right now the property markets in China are extraordinarily weak. There is some research that we've seen that would tell you that the housing stock in China is massively overbuilt. But the government in their desire to keep the economy rolling has continued to push stimulus into the economy. And they bailed out some real estate developers. They're spending a a huge amount of money on infrastructure in order to keep things rolling because The worst thing for the Chinese government would be a big spike in unemployment and social unrest and so on. So they're continuing to stimulate and those stimulus measures have increased steel demand in other sectors besides the property market. So think infrastructure, automotive, appliances, and so on. So Chinese demand has been softer this year, but not as weak as people thought given how terrible uh, the property market is. So. With that as a backdrop on China, it's really important to watch that economy, read the headlines, see what's going on over there, because it can and will impact prices here in the United States eventually. Shifting over to Europe, production there has been very weak this year, right at its lowest level in perhaps seven or eight years. And notably that includes COVID. So they shut down a lot of steel production when COVID hit. And then of course we've had the Ukraine war which resulted in a lot of production cuts there, but the economy in Europe is not recovering. As a matter of fact, just this morning, we got purchasing managers indexes for the European region that were very weak. So it signals that they're either in a recession or approaching a recession, and steel production there has been very weak, and pricing has also been very low. The price cycle in both China and Europe matters to the US because as we talked about, Chinese imports can flow into different markets and European imports can flow into the U.S. in a certain amount. We have what's called a tariff rate quota system with Europe that allows those countries to import steel into the U.S. And that's really a a morphing of the 232 tariffs that you probably heard of that started in 2018. And basically, the steel companies there can export some steel to the U.S., and Those tons will flow into the U.S. once pricing in the U.S. gets high enough. 232s are still in place against some countries, notably Turkey. Korea, we had an agreement similar to Europe where they have a tariff rate quota system where they can import some steel into the U.S., but once it goes over a certain amount, it's subject to tariffs. Brazil is similar. So what we watch is the level of U.S. prices and when those get to the point where imports can be brought into this country at an effective level. And steel prices here in the U.S. bottomed out end of October, early November, and have started on a very rapid rise here. So the price that we're seeing here in the U.S. is now at a pretty big premium to the international prices. So people are starting to look at imports and book imports. And I think staying on the U.S. for a moment There's been a lot of new steel mills invested in here in this country. And in particular, the new steel mills, which would be Steel Dynamics mill in Sinton, Texas, Nucor expanded their Gallatin mill and Northstar Blue Scope, which is in Delta, Ohio, also added a significant amount of capacity. The Northstar mill came up roughly on schedule. The SDI Sinton mill or Steel Dynamics Sinton mill has been a very slow ramp up, much less than expected. So I think that really gives you a backdrop on global steel supply and be happy to answer any questions you might have at this point.
0: Tim, I think my immediate follow-up question is, on the lumber side, we usually talk about a consumption of lumber. And we typically say that U.S. producers produce about 70% of U.S. demand and Canada fills in that other 30%, just rough numbers. I'm just sort of curious on the steel side, like, what is the U.S. appetite for steel, and how does it match up with U.S. production of steel? You said that 100 million tons. Like, where is U.S. demand in relation to that? Like, how much do we have to rely on uh, imports? At any given,
2: yeah, great question. So, the U.S., as I mentioned, produces roughly 100 million tons of steel. That includes both flat products and long products. Long product would be like rebar that you see being produced to go into highway projects and Concrete foundations and so on. But anyway, 100 million tons of production demand in the US is usually 120 to 125 million tons a year. So we need imports. And so for that reason, US prices are almost always going to trade at a premium to international prices because there has to be that price premium there to bring in those imports and make it worthwhile to load, ship, unload, and transport that steel to domestic users.
1: Okay, so this is a great starting place and a dashboard for us to work from. So then let's dive a little bit more into the specifics that sort of affect our component manufacturers, potentially our plate manufacturers. Those are the folks, the plate manufacturers that are the largest steel buyer, obviously, in our industry. But they buy a very specialized product called galvanized cold rolled sheet steel. So has that product tracked what's been going on in the overall steel market and sort of like why or why not?
2: Yes, it it does track the overall steel market. And the reason is basically the base product for that galvanized cold rolled sheet steel is hot rolled coil, which is the basic steel that comes out of a mill. Sometimes people call it carbon black. Uh, We'll just call it hot rolled coil. So a, a very large degree, I would say most of the price movement in cold rolled galvanized product is due to underlying movements in the hot rolled coil market. So when we look at those different markets, we'll look at the price of hot rolled coil. And then there's a premium or spread over hot rolled coil that gets you to cold rolled because there's additional processing that takes place when you cold roll uh, hot, rolled, hot rolled coil. And then there's another process where they galvanize
0: it. Tim, a follow-up question to that. So we are familiar on the lumber side of things of sometimes certain grades or species get really tight because of production capacity, because of availability of the the logs that are being cut down in the forest. In this particular case, what you said is there isn't a lot of, or there, there isn't enough production capacity for this galvanized steel product. Has that been a systemic thing, or is that something that's happened recently? And, and why I'm asking that is I'm curious whether or not there's any motivation to add capacity in that for that product?
2: Yeah, so the shortage of galvanized capacity really developed over a long period of time and was probably most acute, I'm guessing four or five years ago. And now there is incentive in place to add galvanizing capacity, and it is happening.
1: Tim, given all of that, I know you work with a lot of steel purchasers that are dealing with some of these issues we're talking about potentially. Can you talk a little bit about the purchaser experience in the steel market? Like, for instance, what are typical lengths of purchasing contracts and how does the price that they're paying relate to the current market?
2: Sure. There's a lot of different ways to purchase steel. Some companies will do it 100% spot, but that's quite rare, I think, particularly in the market that you're referring to. Some of the big OEMs, like Think General Motors and Ford, they they can and do get annual firm fixed prices on steel from the mills. And not for all their volumes, but for a significant chunk of those. But for smaller buyers, and again, we're comparing them to the auto companies, which are just massive buyers. So most companies, I think, that would be making the connector plates that you all are, are consuming are going to be buying usually on a six-month lag or a three-month lag, or in some cases, a one-month lag. So what that would mean is their steel prices for the Q1 of 2024 are going to be based on the average steel price for the Q4 of 2023.
1: Excellent. Tim, this has been some really fascinating information. I really appreciate all of the light you've shed on the steel industry for us today. As we finish up, could you just provide your sort of best guess on what you think some big things will be for us to watch for that Could potentially impact the steel industry and the steel market in the next, say, near to maybe medium future?
2: Yeah, there's a few things. So I think first off, I would watch this U.S. steel takeover news. So if you're not aware, U.S. steel is subject to being taken over by, apparently there's as many as five bidders for the company. And those bidders are companies like Stelco, which is a Canadian steel company. Turium, which is from Argentina. CSN might be in the mix, they're from Brazil. Arcelor, which is a really global steel maker. But the company that kicked this all off was Cleveland Cliffs, trying to buy U.S. steel. They made the initial bid about three months ago. And the reason why we think that's really important is you're gonna wanna watch and see who ends up with U.S. steel. Secondly, I think, just to give you something to, to watch, as far as an indicator for steel prices, and that would be lead times. So you may not have access to, to lead time data, but there's a newsletter called Steel Market Update. They produce a, a newsletter a few times a week and they have a, a, a lead time study, their survey that they put out, I think it's every couple of weeks or maybe monthly. When lead times are really low, it means you can order steel from a mill and it shows up very quickly, two or three weeks. When we're really low and those lead times start to rise, in most cases, that means steel prices are going to rise in the near future. There might be a month or two lag, but that's probably one of the more important indicators. And then conversely, when steel prices are really high or steel lead times are really high, like they are right now, when they start to ease and roll over, that's your signal that steel prices are probably going to start to come down. So we don't get compensated by steel market update. There's other news providers that provide lead times, but it's, it's probably one of the most important things to watch. The other thing that the steel market update does is a buyer sentiment survey. And what we found over time is that when this survey reaches extremes, do the opposite. So when the buyer survey, when everyone says they don't want to buy steel and the buyer survey is very low, you need to start thinking about buying more. My, buying more inventory of connecting plates or whatever the steel components are that you use because it's kind of a crowd effect market. It's like at the very peak when everyone thinks everything's going higher forever and ever, do the opposite. So when the buyer surveys are really bullish, you should be more negative, And where they're very bearish, you should get more positive. So I think those are really the, the three main things that I would pay attention to.
1: Excellent. Well, Tim, I, again, I just really appreciate having you on this special episode today. I do think that that wraps up our discussion for the moment, but Sean, I appreciate you being with us. And Tim, of course, your expertise were just an excellent addition to Lumber Connection. Thank you so much, Tim and Sean. Thanks,
0: Molly. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This has been a Lumber Connection podcast by SBCA. If you have a question you'd like a guest to answer on a future podcast, send it to podcast at sbcacomponents.com.